um, we're going through this fall the Satipatthana Sutta, the great discourse of the Buddha on the establishment of mindfulness. And we are um, getting near the end of it, but there's still four more sections, um, four more exercises or practices of mindfulness to be discussed. And now we're uh, in a section called, uh, the overall section, uh, called uh, the section on the Dhammas, on mindfulness of the Dharmas, mindfulness of what can be known, the knowables, or be mindful of those processes that uh, either keep us in cycles of suffering or those processes that help us become free of suffering. And um, there's been a shift a little bit in the, in the kind of direction of the text here at this section on the Dhammas. From earlier, the text is more mostly uh, um, uh, involves a kind of straightforward awareness of what's actually happening in the moment. No analysis, no understanding beyond how it is in the moment, for the most part. Now the text is involved in, in also doing that, but also being but being aware of how these things are part of a process, how the, um, of, uh, keeps us in suffering, keeps us attached, or helps us to become free. If you go on a vipassana retreat that's taught at Spirit Rock or IMS, um, the instructions, so-called instructions, on uh, that coming from this part of the text this last section of the text about the Dhammas, uh, will not, doesn't, does usually not appear in the instruction part of the retreat. In the morning, usually on these retreats, people will give instructions for the day or for expanding the practice as we go along through the retreat. And then in the evening, there's a Dharma talk. And the next morning, they add another set of instructions, and instructions usually build over the days of the retreat. And, uh, and this set of instructions that the Buddha gave in this part of the, of the discourse are not given during the instructional part of the sitting. And some people might think, oh, it's not really part of what we do when we do vipassana. But this part of the, of the text appears in a dharma talk, at least some of them. And not in every retreat, but uh, you know, if you go to a number of retreats, hopefully uh, you'll get uh, teachings about these categories that appear in this section on the dhammas. So, for example, uh, probably the most common talk given on retreats is uh, talks on the five hindrances, which we talked about the last two weeks. And the five hindrances um, are, the fir- are the first exercise under the section of Dhammas. Um, another uh, relatively common uh, list that's talked about is the seven factors of awakening. And the seven factors of awakenings are, are very much those factors, those mental processes that come into play as a person becomes liberated, as they become freer. And another, category, another section that might be covered on retreats is the Four Noble Truths. And we talk about that a fair amount. And you might not realize that it's part of the instructions from this text to pay attention to it. It just kind of comes through as part of the Dharma talk. So that's three of the five exercises in this section. The last two, or they're not last, they don't appear at last in the list, but the last two now, um, are not so commonly discussed. And... Uh, in fact, probably you can go for 10 years in retreats, and at least one of them, and maybe you won't ever hear anything about in this, in this kind of detail you find here. Um, the one we'll look, be looking at today is called the five aggregates. And there might be kind of a little bit of uh, service, uh, uh, attention given to the five aggregates, but not much. And the one for next week is called um, the six bases. 
And I don't think I've ever heard a talk on the six bases. And I think most people don't have a clue what they are. Uh, but it's one of the five exercises that is given here. So for today, it's the five aggregates. And um, as usual, as I read this, uh, it might seem very dry, very technical, and some of you might fall asleep. Uh, or some of you might wonder, how could this text be one of the most revered sa- bodies of sacred literature in the Buddhist world? This particular sutra that I'm reading from these days. How could something so dry and so technical be revered? And Anyway, it is. Um, so it's the five aggregates, the next section. It's a little bit of background for it. Um, when the Buddha gave his first discourse, after he was enlightened, he walked around India looking for his five companions. They'd been with him for uh, some time prior to that. And um, he had been practicing asceticism for many years, and his companions were ascetic practitioners. At some point, he decided that he, asceticism was not the way to go. And... Um, he didn't really know what, what the other way to go, but he decided that wasn't the way to go. And in his breaking from that tradition, he ate some um, uh, rice pudding that someone offered him. His five ascetic friends were horrified that he should succumb to such luxury. And so they left him. And after he was enlightened, he went to look for them because he thought they would understand what he had discovered. And so then he gave his first discourse, and it's called the Discourse on Turning the Wheel of the Dharma. And in that discourse is the first time then where he raises up this issue of the five aggregates. And he does so in the context of talking about suffering. He kind of enumerates some of the areas of suffering that are included in the first noble truth. And he says that it is suffering to be uh, in the presence of people that uh, you'd rather not be in the presence of. It is suffering not to be in the presence of people you'd want to be in, present, in the presence of, people you love. It's suffering to get what you don't want, and it's suffering not to have what you want. And then he says, in, in brief... It's not, not clear to me exactly how he worded this, but in brief or in summary, or in addition, saying it very briefly, the five, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. The disposition or the tendency to cling to the five aggregates is suffering. So that was in his first discourse. In his second discourse that he gave some days later to the same group of people, he was going to talk about his teachings of not-self. And there he went through, he did this kind of, it was, it was part of only partly a, a discourse because he did it in, in question and answer mode. And he asked um, the monks, um, is your body permanent? Is your body um, something you have autonomy over? Do you have control over your body? You can, you know, if you get sick, can you just will it to be well just like that? Or can you just, you know... And, and he asked, um, is your body blissful? And this implication here is it always going to be blissful. And they said, no, it's not permanent. I have no, we have no auto- ultimate autonomy over it. 
and is not ultimately blissful. Then he did the same thing for, um, that was the body. And that body happens to be the first of the five aggregates. And then he did the same thing for the other of the aggregates. He asked, is this, oh, oh sorry, so, so is this, is, is, uh, so the second aggregate is feeling, or the feeling tone of our experience, which is very important in Buddhism. Are things pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? The next aggregate is our perceptions. Very simple perceptions are, are, are uh, very simple, basic, more or less accurate, but not always, recognition of how things are, what's happening. Like a book, you see a book, you recognize it as a book. Um, the fourth aggregate is, a, is an aggregate which is very big. It uh, includes all the mental dispositions, our intentions, a, our thoughts, our feelings, our reactions, our emotional feelings, our memories, our dispositions, you know, the whole category, kind of the, the most, most of the category of the mind is included in this fourth aggregate. And the fifth aggregate is consciousness. The basic, very, very simple uh, act of the mind becoming aware of what's there. So um, it's almost before the mind recognizes the book as a book, that awareness, that consciousness of the book that appears before even recognizing what it is, is considered to be this consciousness, this co- the fifth of the aggregates. The word aggregates translates to the word kanda. And seemingly before the Buddha started teaching, this was a very common Indian word of his time that meant something like a heap, a bunch of something a pile of something, uh, a, a collection of something. And um, sometimes it's translated into English as the five heaps. Um, it's, a very, you know, it's not a very technical word, just like a bunch of things. And if you think of your, uh, you know, your, um, each of these five aggregates, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's included within it. So, for example, um, the fourth one of, the mental dispositions, there's a lot of dispositions in there, a lot of thoughts, a lot of memories, a lot of feelings, a lot of intentions, a lot of things included. Perceptions, there's a whole slew of perceptions we're having all the time. Maybe you could, uh, so, so the five piles, the five groupings of stuff. So he went through this and he said, is this, is this um, permanent? Do you have autonomy over it? Is it blissful for each of the five? And the ascetic friend says, no. We have no ultimate permanence, we can't find any ultimate permanence in our feelings that we have, in the perceptions we make, in our dispositions, our intentions, our thoughts, our memories, and also there's no ultimate permanency in consciousness, in the way that the Buddha was defining consciousness here. And, um, and, so, and the same thing for perceptions and for dispositions and consciousness, nothing. Then he asked them the big question. And this is a question that enlightened them. So are you ready for this? I know you're falling, as- I know you're falling asleep now. It's kind of tiring <laughs> to go through these. But this is where, the, you know, if you've, been, if you've been following carefully, if you've been hanging on to every word I've been saying, you'd be primed now for the next question. The next question is, is it appropriate to take that which is not permanent, that which you have no autonomy over, no control over, that which is not permanently, ultimately kind of blissful, as self. 
And they said no. And um, and then they started the process of becoming free. These are kind of these are people who've been practicing spiritual life for years as ascetics, or I don't know how else they pri- they practice. So in some sense, they are primed, maybe to just to hear a little discourse and kind of have something change inside of them. But in a, lot of, a lot of it was in ancient India, there was a tremendous pursuit for the true self. And people didn't know where to look for it, and they were looking for all kinds of places. And the Buddha said, you can't find in any of these places. If, you can't, if that's not the true self, is it appropriate to cling to it? No. And so they started the process, these ascetics listened to that, and they started that process of no longer clinging to body, feelings, perceptions, dispositions, and consciousness. When they finished that process of not clinging to any of those five, they were liberated. They became liberated like the Buddha. So one way of understanding the five aggregates, that's a very common way of understanding it, is that they are kind of the way that the Buddha divides up the psychophysical human being. That um, it's kind of like, you know, in America we use the English system of measurements. We have feet and yards and miles. And in Europe, or, or the rest, most of the rest of the world, they have the metric system. And so they have centimeters and millimeters and meters and kilometers. And there's no ultimate truth. Is there to choosing one over the other? They say some is more convenient than others, easier to handle. But, you know, it's just one way of dividing up measurement. And it's, not, you know, just different ways. You could probably invent an, your own system of measurement based on some other categories, and it would just be valid too. So this is one way of understanding a psychophysical being, is to divide the being into these five aggregates. And the understanding in Buddhism is that our whole human experience of ourselves is included within these five aggregates. And that's how these five ascetics, I think, understood it. So that that which we normally would take as our empirical self, that which we can experience and see and feel and touch and somehow be aware of, none of that they realized qualified as a self, as a sense of self, a place they cling to as self. And then they started the process of, they've already, these ascetics have probably given up, a, given up a lot of attachments before that. After all, they were ascetics, right? They probably weren't attached to comfort and things. But maybe their last little uh, clinging was the clinging to taking things personal, as a self in some way. So, and then throughout the Buddha's teaching career, he made references over and over again back to these five aggregates. They're very important for him for some reason. Because, and usually the way he talked about the five aggregates, he called them the five aggregates of clinging. And here you'll see in a moment, that's how he talks about them here. Um, so uh, maybe it doesn't explain you know, who the psychophysical human being is, but what the Buddha is saying here is, um, is that, that, that our clinging, our, our suffering, one of the very important areas of our suffering has to do with the way we relate to our body, to our feelings, to our perceptions, to our dispositions, and to our consciousness. And it's very common for human beings to have some degree of suffering because they're clinging to one of those five. And if you could stop clinging to any of these, 
that's probably all you need to do in order to become fully liberated. Um, so here is the passage. Again, monks, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging. And how does a monk abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging? Here a monk understands such is material form, such is the body. Such is its origin, such its disappearance. Such is feeling, such its origin, such is disappearance. Such is perception, such its origin, such its disappearance. Such are the formations, such their origin, such their disappearance. Such is consciousness, such its origin, such its disappearance. In this way, he or she abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects or dhammas as dhammas internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk abides contemplating dhammas, dharmas, and dharmas in terms of the five aggregates of clinging. So uh, the instructions here is to understand in the and develop our mindfulness by understanding how we cling to these five aggregates as we're clinging to them. So, body is pretty easy to understand. I, it's, uh, I think that you don't have to go very far in your own life, my guess is most of you, uh, to f- find out, to realize that once in a great while, you cling to your body. All right? Maybe sometime last month was it? Maybe, maybe if you kind of stretch, you know, you're close to it at least, right? Almost did. Uh, so um, we cling to our appearance. It's a big one. We cling to our comfort. We cling to our health. We cling to all kinds of ideas about you know our body. And it's relatively common to take, in some way to take the body as being the self. Maybe we don't philosophically take it that way, but um, 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 you know it's been said that people spend uh, are more careful with put, uh, choosing the clothes and the makeup they wear than in the words they speak. And so, you know, we certainly act as if we're attached to our body by how we kind of groom ourselves and take care of ourselves and present ourselves to the world, many of us. Um, And so the instructions here are basically to start becoming aware of how and when and where you cling to your physical existence, cling to the physical aspects of life. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to take care of your body and take care of the normal things in life. But the instructions are, if you want to become free of the suffering born from clinging, you need to start paying attention to where you cling, how you cling. Then it says, and so and generally in mindfulness practice, the instructions are just be aware of that. Don't, there's non-reactive awareness. Don't judge that. Don't take it as bad. Don't try to just reject it offhand. Just see it clearly in awareness. Then, but then it goes a little bit further on, and it says, um, not only be aware of it in and of itself, but become aware of its origin and its disappearance. So become aware of how the clinging 
to the aggregates arises in the first place? What are the conditions that bring it about? What happens that brings it about? And what are brings about its disappearance? Or how is it that it disappears? So, for example, um, say you have an itch. You're sitting here meditating, mind your own, minding your own business, and you get an itch. And because of that itch, um, you have thoughts, and those thoughts say that if you don't scratch that itch, you're going to die. <laughs> and then there's certain, uh, certain uh, element of believing those thoughts or being engaged in those thoughts, of being attached and clinging to those thoughts. We don't usually think of them as clinging to us. Maybe it's more like we're being afflicted by those thoughts. But still, there's a kind of clinging going on there. There's clinging to comfort, perhaps, or there's kind of aversion or resistance to discomfort. There's a perception of the meaning, perhaps, of the itch. Very simple perceptions of the itch, and itches mean something. Itches must mean a mosquito, or itches must mean melanoma. This is it, you know. And it isn't just so. There's all kinds of things, you know, reactions we have to it, and so, and the mind then starts churning and gets agitated and moves because of the very very subtle ways perhaps we're now attached or clinging or concerned by something. So you might be aware of the aggregate of a disposition, aggregate this aggregate of, of a disposition, maybe in a thought, an intention, wanting to scratch it, resistance, impatience might arise, all kinds of things might arise in and then at some point the itch goes away. And then you're aware that that the disposition to, to, to scratch, the impatience, the thoughts around it, all f- go away with the disappearing of the itch. Or maybe wisdom sets in and says, oh, this is just an itch. No one has ever died from an itch. And that thought just sets you free. And just now you, you no longer care about the itch anymore. And, and so maybe the itch is still there, but there's no more clinging to it. There's no more creation of this, of this aggregate based on clinging. Um, so to see the arising of something and the passing away of something. Now this is, um, and so this goes through with all, it's very interesting, this exercise of seeing how things come into being and how things pass away. And one of the reasons why it's so interesting is that usually we will attribute a self who's in charge and control of these things. I am wanting to itch. I decided I had to scratch. And that's an innocent enough thing to say. But if you put your experience under the microscope of careful awareness, you can't find an I. What you find is a series of processes that come into play, one conditioning another. So, for example, what you find is you find an itch. You find, based on that itch, you find a thought. Or you find a feeling or reaction. Based on that thought, you find an intention. Based on the intention, perhaps, there's an impulse to move the hand and to scratch. And there's a whole series of very subtle kind of movements of cause and effect that ripple through you, maybe very fast, but you realize, as you see really carefully, that to attribute a self in that chain of cause and effect 
is to add something from outside of that chain of cause and effect. And in fact, there is no self in that chain of cause and effect. Now, isn't that fascinating? Then who's doing it? If you say me, where, where is that me? You look more carefully. You look more carefully into that chain. And, well, it's not there in the chain. But I'm here, ain't I? Are you outside of that chain? Are you not, not that chain? Are you, you know, what's your relationship to that chain of cause and effect that sets into motion? So, so to start doing that with all our experience and to see all our experience, all our clinging and our reactions and thoughts and feelings arising and passing as a chain of cause and effect within which you cannot find yourself, a self, will probably blow you away. If you really get into it and do it really well. Some people get frightened at this point in the meditation. Up until that point, they're sitting in meditative bliss. And then they look more carefully and they realize... I can't find myself in that bliss. Wait a minute. I left, did I leave myself at home? Or, you know, if, if I'm not in, in that bliss, or if I'm not you know, in relationship to that bliss, so you can't find, if you look carefully in this cause of chain and effect, where, this, where the self is. The reason to do this kind of analysis is so to help you to relax. Because, according to the Buddhist analysis, the notion of taking things personally or to or identify with things you can do it in a kind of ordinary way but but it's a, the, the identification with our body feelings perceptions dispositions and consciousness as a self or as somehow defining who you are is a condition for further suffering and if you can let go of any need to find or attribute or hold on to that as a self, to use it, this is who I am. That is a condition for becoming freer. If you're no longer clinging to your good looks, this defines who I am. Or clinging to your bad looks, this defines who I am. And that's not who you... You don't, you don't care how you look. That's not who you... You, know, you don't think... That's not who you base yourself on being as a human being, then you're free from your looks. If you don't care, if you don't base yourself in your comfort or discomfort, then, you know, the comfort and discomfort that happens doesn't imbalance you, doesn't cause the mind to react or create a sense of self. Our dispositions are such a huge category. Our opinions... Are you your opinions? The way some people act, you think they are. I, you know, sometimes I, I'm, I, you know, I act as if my opinions are, you know, you know, who I am because I sure want people to know that I have those opinions. Because if they know I have that opinion, they're going to think really good of me, and then they'll know what a good self I am. So it isn't just simply that I'm attached to having a good self. I'm attached to having them have a, a good attachment, good sense, or a good idea of who myself is. But if I'm not concerned about using my opinions to define who I am and to prove who I am, then I'm free to a certain extent from my opinions. And if you get, if you kind of follow this kind of train of thought, then you begin seeing that if you do this to everything, 
that you can define as the self, you start to become freer and freer, lighter and lighter. The Buddha gave four different ways, erroneous ways, which you can take the five aggregates as the self. Each of the ones are all together. One is to equate the self with one of the aggregates. The body is form. Uh, um, the body is the self. Or no, my, I know my body is not myself, but I know you know feelings are not myself because they come and go. I know perceptions are not myself. That's, but my thoughts, that's really who I am, isn't it? Or some people who've studied a lot of Eastern religion might say, yeah, all those things are not self, but consciousness is the self, isn't it? That's, that must surely qualify. And um, so it's kind of a one-to-one equation that one of the aggregates is the self. That's one erroneous view. The other erroneous view is that um, is the self is a part kind of above or outside the aggregates, but controls them. So I know that I'm not. I'm, I know that I'm not the five aggregates, but I'm somehow, you know, just outside, kind of controlling it. The other erroneous view is that um, the view that the the self is not the same thing as the aggregates, but the self is found within the aggregates, like some core, or like kernel within, you know, you know in the middle of our being, find there. And the fourth one is that, um, which is uh, somewhat interesting because the way some people, some religious or some people think, is uh, from the Buddhist point of view, it's erroneous to consider that the um, self there is, um, um, uh, includes the five aggregates. That the self is this huge, kind of like the cosmic self, that, you know, the, the whole cosmos is self, or everything is self, or the self is one with everything, and the five aggregates are included within that. And the reason why the Buddha, I think, is calling all of these erroneous views is that uh, when you do this very careful looking at your empirical experience, you realize it doesn't make any sense to impute, to theorize, to, ju- to intuit that any of these things actually are the case. They're all conclusions that, are, that people come with when they generalize, when they're not really paying very careful attention to the, the mind-body process. And they're not needed. You don't need to come to any conclusions about what the self is. And that's one of the great contributions of the Buddha to the life of liberation, is that in becoming liberated, it's not necessary to have any theory or any in intuition or any perception of having to do with the nature of the self. You don't have to be involved in the self-thing game. You don't have to find the true self or figure out, you know, the self is not part of the game. What's part of the game is learning to, very simply, to stop clinging, to let go of clinging. And one of the primary places we cling to is the five aggregates in some way or other. Um, so you might uh, try it for a week. Look at these, uh, uh, memorize these five qualities. Take the Buddha's, you know, metric system to heart for a week. Just 
just take it, you know, this is the way he measured the human being. And there are other ways, but this is his way. And it's, it's, the idea is that all our human experience, all of ourself, of kind of psychophysical being, is that can be put in one of these five categories. So kind of look at what's happening in your life. Look at your suffering when you're suffering. Look at your experience. And then see where clinging arises. In, in you know, see which one, which your which one, which one, which with five your experience falls under, and then see if you can understand how you're clinging to it, or how you're clinging to it as by taking it as as yourself, by identifying with it, and see if it's necessary to, to identify with it. See if it's possible to free yourself from that. Kind of look at look at these five aggregates. Look how they work in your life. And perhaps it will become a useful exercise for you. Remember that the first people that the Buddha enlightened, he enlightened in these two discourses where he pointed to the five aggregates as a place for them to pay attention and to see where their experience is. The last thing I would like to say is that the word, the Pali word for clinging in this discussion here is upadana. And very interestingly, upadana has double meaning. It certainly means clinging, but it also means fuel or sustenance. Like a fire, the fuel for a fire is called upadana. It keeps the fire burning. But there's a kind of a notion in India, that ancient India, that um, uh, fire that is burning off the log is also clinging to the log. So the log is both, the, the, that connection between the fire and the log is both the fire's fueling the fire, feeding it, and it's the joint, the point of clinging. Or the, the, the fuel is that which is sustaining the clinging. So the same word, clinging and sustaining, or sustenance are the same word. So then what this points to is a cyclic nature or the, or the building nature of how our clinging works. When you cling, the clinging you have becomes the food for further clinging. It creates the conditions for us to cling more. So stop feeding it. So that's my thoughts. So we have about five minutes, and um, I hope it was clear enough. Um, so what's your thoughts about that? And Yes. Could you repeat? Just say them all again. Mm-hmm. Um, the it, uh, the first one is uh, usually understood as body, but it also sometimes is taken as to be form, any kind of form. Um, if you know, uh, the, if some of you know the Heart Sutra, um, the Heart Sutra uses the five aggregates as one of the prime, one of the first things it talks about. And um, when I was first introduced to the five aggregates was in the form of the Heart Sutra, the Mahayana discourse, where it negates them in a certain way. Uh, uh, and because I negate them, so there's no, I thought, oh, there's no need to learn them. <laughs> but actually, you're supposed to know them really well, and then you understand how they can be negated. You don't overlook them. Um, and um, so it says, the Heart Sutra says, um, uh, form is emptiness, and form here is this first kanda. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is no different than emptiness, 
Emptiness is no different in form. And the same is true of the other five, or the, of the other four skandhas. So we're talking about the five skandhas here in the Heart Sutra. So form, or b- the body. Um, the feeling tone of our experience. Our perception. Our, it's here it's called formations. It's a very difficult word to understand. It's a pretty good literal translations of the fourth one. Formations, our dispositions, our intentions, this whole kind of catch can of everything that's mental that makes us tick, kind of makes us work, except for consciousness, perception, and feeling tone. So body, feelings, perceptions, the formations, mental formations, and then the fifth one is consciousness. Perception is the very simple recognition of what something is. So, um, so it's, it's said that everything has uh, a mark or a sign um, that somehow, somehow lets us know that what, what it is. And it's recognizing that sign so we know what very, the very simple what it is. So like there's, there's some kind of bookness in this book. And so somehow we pick up that mark or that sign of the book. And that very simple recognition of a book is perception. Um, and uh, perception might not be a good, uh, it's probably not a good translation of the word sanya. Uh, but scholars have gone round and around to try to come up with a better uh, word into English and people keep coming back to perception. It lends, lends itself to some confusion in English uh, because we have other meanings for perception. Sometimes it's synonymous almost with being conscious. Um, but uh, um, uh, some, sometimes cognizing, some people like to do, um, uh, but that's uh, that's that maybe lends itself to being very complicated. Um, I had one that I used to like. Um, I forgot what it was. So anyway, recognition is okay. Does that, that answer well enough? I guess, what is it that recognizes these five heaps as self? There's no need to, um, there's no need to answer, ask that question or to answer that question. It's an obvious question to ask, but um, it's, uh, you don't have, to, not, not necessary to ask who is it that's experiencing the experience. Um, uh, uh, perception is perceiving these things happening. And it's enough just to leave it at that. Perception is happening. Because if you start saying who, then you have to look for that who. And where are you going to find it? What is, uh, what is taking form, let's say, as self? Clinging is creating a self. So. There, there, according to the, this kind of analysis, um, there, there is no, um, none of the five aggregates qualify as the self. Then the question someone might ask, is there something apart from the five aggregates which qualifies as a, as a self? And one of the answers would be, well, if it's apart from the five aggregates, it's outside of our empirical experience. And so it ha- it's not relevant to this whole game. I'm not wondering where the truth self plays in, but where 
Yes, it's a disposition. It's a it's an idea, it's an intention, it's a disposition of the mind. Yes. It could be. Um, it's a big question you ask. Um, good one. I do know, kind of, um, because I was reminded yesterday. I uh, once I was talking with Jack Engler, who's a uh, Jack Engler, who's a the um, psychotherapist and researcher, who, co- who was the first one to say in the literature, you have uh, you have to have a strong sense of self in order to be able to let go of a sense of self, and he is um, horrified. That's, he wrote this great article about this topic, and he's horrified that all people ever know about, remember, is that phrase. <laughs> so that they take it out of context. Um, the, um, so I don't know if I'll answer your question directly. Maybe it's an ongoing discussion. But, um, I mean, understanding our beliefs is a very important thing, and finding our beliefs, finding what we understand and believe is a very important process for adults also, not just teenagers. And um, in a kind of very general sense, to, to understand who the self is is important. The Buddha, I mean, that just you know, it's part of what Buddha said. You know, it's important to understand you know, who the self is. But he was talking kind of in very general terms. Um, uh, what, he, what he meant by that is uh, understanding things like our beliefs, our reactions, our dispositions, our uh, our body, and understanding all the all the different elements that that. But generally make up this thing we, we kind of say me over here, Gil. Um, but what he doesn't want to do is to posit some kind of um, essentialist kind of self, the self, the true self, because we tend to, add, add, uh, or some kind of self that we then, we posit some kind of self or some have some intuition that there is a self here and then we attach to something as this is who I really am. Um, See, once we say that, see, the danger is, is once we say I'm looking for my true self or finding myself or developing myself, then that concept of self is a magnet for a lot of other cultural ideas and personal and familial ideas of what it means to have a self. Some of them which cause a lot of suffering. A lot of the things that therapists want individuals to do in therapy, Buddhists want them to do also. But they simply wouldn't say you're developing a self. They'd say you're just developing strong qualities. You're developing integrity. You're developing strong powers of observation. You're developing your your abilities for compassion and for kindness and for 
uh, discernment and all kinds of things. You're developing these things to a great degree. But, you know, they're a little bit uncomfortable saying, well, you're developing yourself in the process of doing that. Unless you use, you're talking kind of colloquially, kind of loosely. Is that, is that at all helpful? No, not so helpful. Oh, well. <laughs> Yes. La- last one, and then we'll stop. I've noticed that my story changes. Right. Is it? I mean, not this. Not because my life changes. Because I remember the past differently. <laughs> well, that's who I was. That's who I am. <laughs> yeah, revisionist. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Yeah, it's and, and then it creates a feedback for Yes, exactly. Yes. But, so what I wonder is, if, because it seems like there's something so unique and beautiful about each narrative, or each evolving narrative, Yes, I agree completely. I don't think we're supposed to uh, simply forget our personal story and background and all that. And one of the ways to be released from it is, um, is uh, as we're telling our narrative once again, or if we're watching the revisions, we see, oh, this is Gil 5.2. <laughs> you know, you see it. You see the creation of this new story. You say, oh. I'm understanding it differently. I'm putting a different spin on it. I'm kind of interpreting it differently, who I am because of it. That's what's happening in the present moment. And so we're not fooled. That we're telling the true story. We say, oh, you watch the, you watch the, part, it's not, I was going to say fiction, but it's like, it's a, um, it's a, um, you know, the fictionalized novel being, you know, historical novel. <laughs> you watch the writing of it. And you're, then you can be free and do it at the same time. Does that, does that make... Yeah, so don't, you know, it's fine. It's great, it's fine. It's, it's very interesting. And I think it's also uh, uh, a profound exercise to come up with new interpretation, new understanding of our life. And It's like if you read a really good poem and you read it over and over again and you see different perspectives and different days and it comes alive in different ways. So the same thing can happen with our lives. Our lives are kind of like a poem. If you understand it in new ways, it comes alive in different ways and new meaning and new understanding and but if you realize that's what you're doing, rather than some essentialist idea, this is... Because I know people who've been burdened and suffer a lot because they're attached to their narrative, their story. And then there are people who are not attached to the narrative enough. 
or maybe I shouldn't say it that way, some people who, you know, who are a little bit too creative <laughs> with uh, all kinds of new narratives, and you wish they had better remembered better, you know. So the five aggregates of clinging. So I hope this was interesting and not too technical or boring. And uh, and uh, I think it is very profound and I did my best. And hopefully you'll take it home and practice with it for a week. Thank you. <laughs>